I'm Pastor Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. Our goal is to provide young couples with the resources they need to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. We are so glad that you're here. Let's get to the lesson. Whose voice can come in? Okay, if you have a hand, if you didn't get a handout, there's handouts on the back counter. Grab you one if you haven't gotten one. We're doing a series where we're going through. So this this year is the year of theology. We're we're going through the year of knowing God. We're trying to look at different doctrines. Uh, just as a reminder for those that uh, may have missed or or uh, are just now catching up, the um, your theology is the most basic thing about you. Because how you see God is how you see the world. And it's important for us as believers to, to wrestle with these really important subjects because they have implications for our life and how we make decisions and how we lead our kids and how we lead each other and how we encourage each other, right? Our, our faith is not just something that is ethereal up in, the, up in the, the, the higher reaches of our mind. This is something that's very practical and very real. Uh, and these have very real uh, implications, Last week, uh, we looked at the, uh, the doctrine of God, and we looked at how, uh, who God claims that He is. Remember, the Scripture teaches us two things. you guys remember what is the first thing the Scripture teaches us? It teaches us about someone. God. So, scripture, the first thing the Scripture does is it teaches us about God. Very good. Okay, the second thing that Scripture teaches us about is what? Ourselves. Ourselves. Thank you. So Scripture teaches us first about God, and after it reveals who God is, His special revelation, then it teaches us who we are, and that gives us a contrast. We see God in His perfection and His holiness, and then we see our brokenness. And what that does is that compels action, because we realize something is wrong. There's something, something broken between our relationship with God and our relationship uh, with each other and, and, and our humanity. So... Um, we looked at last week that there was a series of covenants where God, at the Garden of Eden in, in Genesis chapter 3, God made an initial promise to the woman, to Eve. And He said, one day your seed, your physical descendants, will, uh, will make this right again. God makes a specific promise, specifically the, the word that He uses that's used in Genesis 3 is seed, capital S. He makes a promise that a Messiah would come. And then there's a series of covenants that happen through history, through the biblical record, of God reaffirming that promise. So the idea is this. God makes a promise to make things right. Human beings are like, yes, awesome, we're in this with you. We're going to do this together. And then the human beings fail. They totally renege on their part of the commitment. And then God says, don't worry, I've got you. He gives another covenant. Again and again and again. He does this through Adam. He does this through Noah, through Abraham, through Isaac and Jacob, eventually to David. And then finally we get to Jesus. The fulfillment of that promise was made in Jesus, right? And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, the doctrine of Jesus, what's also called Christology. Remember, ology is the study of, so this is the study of Christ, the study of Jesus. Um, there's a number of things that we're going to look at here, uh, and the challenge about this particular series of what we're doing is that each one of these points could be a lesson in and of itself, that Jesus was fully God and fully man, that He was the promised Messiah, that He was God with us. All these things are could be lessons on their own, and we have 30 minutes to go through all these points. So obviously, we can't go in depth. Um, I would love to do that, which we could, but um, for the sake of, of time and for the sake of us being able to cover the things that I feel like God wants us to cover this year, we're not able to. So what I've done is I have 
provided references for you if you want to study this further. Uh, if you're unfamiliar, we're going through a book called Everyday Theology by Mary Wiley. I've been putting the link in the, the newsletter. If you want to do this, it's a five-day study every week. So every time that we do a doctrine, it's, it's the culmination of, we, of a week's worth of study. So every day, she drills down into these different subjects, different aspects of the subject. So if you want to go deeper in these things, you can jump right in. You don't have to start at the beginning. This week is the doctrine of Jesus. Next week is the doctrine of, of the Holy Spirit. So uh, I've been putting a link for the Amazon uh, book if you want to get it uh, on, the, uh, on the newsletter. So where we're going to start? We're going to start with uh, Jesus as fully God and fully man. <coughs> John 1.14 says this, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of, the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation is the fancy word that means Jesus becoming flesh. He became incarnate. He, he laid aside his, uh, his, the prerogatives of being God just for a moment so that He could then uh, walk and do life as a human being. This is also called the hypostatic union. That's the other fancy seminary word, hypostatic union. And essentially, it's the term that describes the union of Christ's divinity and his humanity. Philippians 2, 1 through 11, is really the, um, the primary passage that describes what happened. And uh, if you've never studied that, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I have to say that in my brain as I'm flipping through. So I want to read this to you really quickly. It says this in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, having this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and, of the, and on the earth and under the earth, and of every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what, you want to, here's what I want you to think about. Is that Jesus' incarnation, essentially... All of the things that we know about God, the think about the attributes that we've discussed so far, that He is all-powerful, that He is omnipresent, He is everywhere all at once, that He is, um, that He's all-knowing, all of these things. So when, when Jesus left heaven and became a human being, He purposely constrained Himself to live a human life. That means that He, even though He, he maintained His deity as God Himself, he chose to limit himself on purpose. So how did he do that? In a couple of ways. One is that he constrained himself to time and space. He walked a, a physical human life. He progressed in time. All of these things. He, he, uh, he purposefully constrained his mind. A God that knows everything, how could he learn how to walk? How could a God that knows everything learn how to 
perform basic hygiene? How, how would he know how to, uh, how to speak? He had to purposefully constrain himself. So he became a, a, a fully, fully man and fully God at the same time. So the second thing is that Jesus was the promised Messiah. This is the, this is the promise of those covenants. So in Genesis 3, uh, it says that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the devil and correct his deception of mankind. That God was going to provide some sort of a, of a relief, some sort of a Messiah. If you go through and you read Genesis chapter 4, the very first verse, it says that, that Adam and Eve, that they knew each other and they conceived a son and they gave birth to Cain. And, Mary, and, and Eve's response is not just that God has provided me with a son. It's that she acknowledges God has provided me with a male son, just like he promised. Eve didn't know if it was going to be Cain who was going to save the world or if it was going to be later on, generations later. All she knew was before, before she had Cain, she didn't have any children. So the, so the mere fact that she actually was able to reproduce, that was confirmation that God was about to fulfill his promise. So she, she knew that God was, was going to provide a way to, to, to redeem creation. Micah 5.2, it prophesies that an ancient ruler will come out of the insignificant little town of Bethlehem to be the ruler over all Israel. This, insignificant, this, this ancient ruler would be someone who would, uh, in a previous existence, somehow would have been the ruler of all creation and yet would come out of this little bitty podunk town. This is like saying that the Messiah would come out of Bowlegs, Oklahoma. How many of you know that there's actually a town called Bowlegs? It's a real place. So when he says that the, that the ruler, the ancient ruler is going to come out of Bethlehem, people are like, this is weird. Like, who, who comes from Bowlegs, right? Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 says that a male child would be born and all the, all the government of the world would rest on his shoulders. He would be a wonderful counselor, an everlasting and mighty God. His authority and peace would never stop growing. And he would be a just and righteous judge forever. Isaiah 53, 1-6 says that the child would, would come from the line of Jesse and King David, that he would be despised and rejected by men and live a life of sorrow and would bring shame to, to, who would bring shame to him and everyone who knew him. He would bear the griefs and the sorrows of everyone and take the punishment of the, for the transgressions of every person that ever lived because they have gone astray like lost sheep. That he would essentially be a king, born in a line of kings. Isaiah 61, 1 through 2 says that he would be full of the Holy Spirit and bring good news to mankind in his suffering and brokenness. The idea is, I want you to consider this. As we think about time and space and history, we have the beginning here. This is in Genesis. And time progresses and we have an end. This is, this is, this is heaven. This is the return of Jesus. Okay? Um, this is what we see in Revelation. And in the middle is the cross. So I want you to consider about this. That this is the life of Jesus. It's, it's no mystery that all of our calendar, all of our dating system is based around this one event. We live in 2024 AD, after death. Everything before this was BC, before Christ. The entire world acknowledges that this is the central point in history. It's only until recently that people have tried to change the, the dating structure to where it's BCE or, or um, AD or whatever. 
So the idea is this. Everything in the, this is everything that's been prophesied in the Old Testament, and it all points to Jesus. Every single thing in the Old Testament points to Jesus. The sacrificial system, uh, the prophecies, the, 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 the scope of history, everything points to this one moment when God was going to fulfill these promises. Philippians 2 describes what this moment looked like. And now since then, everything in the New Testament and everything that's happened since then points back to this moment here. And there are some people who say, well, you know, Christians are just terrible people. There's nothing significant about Christians. Well, yeah, we can, we can read Scripture and we can realize that every single time that God makes a promise with human <coughs> beings, human beings always fail. They always reject. They always, they always fall through on their part of the covenant. And yet, God is consistent. So, whenever we're reading, for instance, the Old Testament, it is crucial for us because it's the lens that makes sense of all of this moment. It's the thing that, that helps us understand that this is not just a random happening that God was like, well, I guess it's, I'm going to fix things. He said, no, I'm going to do this very, very intentionally. And He's going to leave us all of these breadcrumbs to see, oh yeah, yes, this is where I prove that I have love for you. But each, each time along the way, when God makes these covenants, He's saying the exact same thing. It, it's a stupid analogy, but it reminds me of the movie Princess Bride. Okay? There's this line that Wesley says to, to, the, to the, the princess through the whole first part of the movie, right? And he's really telling her something different. What does he say? He says, as you wish. But what is he really saying? I love you. Okay? So when God makes a covenant with human beings through Adam, through, through Abraham, through Noah, through through David, all of them in the Old Testament, what God is saying is, I am a promise keeper. I'm a promise keeper. And the ultimate realization of that is the cross. So he is the promised Messiah. We have to understand that our relationship with Christ is not an accident. God did not see things get messed up and be like, well, oh man, how am I going to fix this? Start wringing his hands. Everything that has happened has been done intentionally. What is the real practical application of that? That means that where you are right now, in the struggle that you're in right now, the situation that you're in right now, has been divinely orchestrated on purpose. Whether it's the health of your children, whether it is your health, whether it is your marriage, your relationships, your parents' relationships, whether it's your friendships, uh, difficult social situations, all of these things have been architected by God. Romans 8.28 tells us that, and we know that all things work together for those who love God, uh, for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. In other words, there is nothing outside of our lives that is beyond God's control. Nothing. The significance of Jesus being the promised Messiah has implications well beyond just Him being the one that was going to take away the sin of the world. The third thing is that Jesus is God with us. Jesus is God with us. Okay, well, it's one thing to acknowledge, oh, yeah, well, God knows that I'm struggling because He knows everything, obviously. He's, omni he's omniscient. So He knows all of my troubles. He knows all of the situations that I'm in. Yeah, but does He care? Does He care about my fractured relationship with my parents? Does He care about my fractured uh, friendship with that friend who, who hates me because now I'm chasing Jesus? Does He care about those things? He does. Luke 2, 1 through 20, it describes that Jesus was physically born and celebrated by all of creation, that his actual physical birth was a real historical moment. Mark 1, 9 through 11 tells us that Jesus was publicly baptized by his friends and his, his cousin, his friend and cousin John the Baptist, 
around his other friends declaring the life that he was sent to live. Why do we get baptized? Because Jesus gave us the primary example saying, this is what's required in order to make a testimony to your generation that you're going to be my child. Does baptism save us? Not the act itself, but the confession of a good heart towards God, Peter tells us, is a thing that, that makes it public for us. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. Jesus lived these things out so that we could participate with him, so we could do the same things that he did. There's a couple of other things about Jesus experiencing human life. Matthew 4 talks about how Jesus experienced real temptation. That's physically, emotionally, spiritually, and psychologically. Yet he didn't sin. That he experienced very real trials. See, think about the, the temptation of Christ. You know, a, an incomplete view would say, well, of course, Jesus didn't respond to temptation because he was God, right? God can't be tempted by sin. But that's not what the text says. He had to have experienced a life, the same life that we live, yet without sin. Otherwise, he's not the perfect substitute for us. That means that there is no, there is no temptation that you will face that he has not already faced to the maximum degree. That means that when you struggle as you are working through your life, there is no struggle that he has not already experienced as well. That's what makes him the perfect high priest, the perfect one to be able to, to, to relate to us and to, to relieve us of our struggle. In Matthew 2, it sa- or in Mark 2, it says that Jesus ate physical food and he dealt with social drama and accusations. I don't know about you, but social drama is a big part of our life, right? Whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's whatever, human beings are drama. They are. And Jesus had to deal with that. Jesus also in Mark 3 says that he was rejected by his family when his obedience to God caused family friction. They even tried to deceive him and have him arrested as clinically insane. Imagine, so here's the picture. So his family, Jesus, obviously, they know he's the Messiah. His mother knows that he's the Messiah. And yet in the middle of his ministry, he's, he's healing people. He's calling people to the kingdom of heaven. He's doing all these incredible things. Well, naturally, conversations start happening with his family. Hey, James, I heard that your brother Jesus like healed somebody the other day. I heard that he, does, he did all these things. I heard that he's challenging the Pharisees on religion. And naturally, his family, being human beings who are fallen, they begin to be, become insecure. Mom, Jesus did it again. He's out there. He's poking the Pharisees in the nose. Can we just, can we just, maybe we go talk to him? Well, you know how he is. You know how Jesus is. And so they convince themselves that something is wrong with him and they actually go to try to arrest him to put him in a psychiatric ward somewhere, if they existed in the first century. And he, and at that moment, they can't even confront him personally. They send a little boy to go try to pull him away from his disciples and pull, pull him away from the crowd because they need to confront him. And he makes a public stance and he says, listen, that's not my family out there because they are they're consumed with their flesh and their insecurities. But then he points to his disciples and he says, here's my family. I don't know if you've been confronted with this yet, where you have people that are really close to you and you start ch- taking Jesus and taking your faith very seriously. And all of a sudden there's tension within your family. They start saying things about you. Oh, well, we know how they are. Big Jesus people, so high and mighty, you know how, you know, oh, that's really unchristian the way that you said that to me. And yet Jesus says, these people, the ones that are chasing after God, they're, they're my real family. You don't understand. 
Jesus says later in a different place, he says, for those that give up family, that give up their father and mother for my sake, I will restore them a hundredfold. What does that mean? It means that as all of us, even though we don't share blood relation, as we chase Jesus together, we become a family. We support each other and we, we encourage one another when we're frustrated, when those people that share our DNA, that know all of our weaknesses and all of our insecurities, when they hurt us so badly, that we can rally around each other and we can encourage each other. Jesus experienced that. That's, that's mind-blowing. It says in John 2 that Jesus went to weddings, that he celebrated with his friends, he danced, and he ate physical food, and this is crazy, he actually might have drank wine. What? Jesus is not a good Baptist. <laughs> I think it's... I've, never mind. There's all kinds of stuff we go into there. Uh, Luke chapter 2 says that Jesus grew into adulthood and he experienced development physically, intellectually, emo- and emotionally. It says that he, after he was... Uh, this, Luke chapter 2, at the end of that, is the, is the portion of Scripture where it gives us the historical account of him being left behind by his parents at the, t- at the temple when he was like 12 years old. This is right before he became a man and went through his bar mitzvah. And it says in, in Luke 2.52 that he went home with his, with his parents and he subjected himself to their authority. God it subjected himself to his parents' authority and he grew in favor and in stature and intellect with God and man. Jesus had to intellectually develop. Jesus had to learn and grow. Jesus had to suffer frustrations that's wild to think that jesus would be frustrated hebrews 9 tells us that he lived perfectly because of complete obedience to the holy spirit it says that he was able to walk into the holy of holies and he was able to sac- able to put his own blood on the mercy seat because he lived completely reliant on the holy spirit of promise and then in isaiah 7 it gives us the picture of, of this the I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the age of accountability. In, in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 7, there is a prophecy about Jesus that he would be protected until the time that he was able to choose between right and wrong. And in that, it says that, uh, that God in his sovereignty protected him until that time. So how could Jesus, even as a little kid, we have, we've been around little kids. They're little terrors sometimes, right? You know, you know, if Jesus lived a human life, that means that he wasn't running around as a toddler with a halo on. Right? Imagine Jesus getting overstimulated. Getting upset. Real human being, and yet still God. That's wild. That's wild. The fourth thing is that Jesus is Savior and Lord. Penal substitution. Penal substitution is the doctrine that states that Jesus took the punishment for our sins as our substitute. That Jesus is the one who lived a perfect life, and yet He is the one who bore the wrath of God for our sake. There's descriptions about this in Scripture. Jeremiah 17 says that that the heart of man is desperately wicked and broken. Verse 10 says that, but the Lord... He essentially opens up the hearts of a man and shows him the nature of his being. That uh, we are broken and we're sinful. In Exodus chapter 12, 
You guys remember the story of the Hebrews in, uh, in Egypt, whenever the plagues were, were rolling through Egypt, the final one was the death of the firstborn. And that the Spirit of God passed over the homes of the Jews because they had smeared the sacrificial blood of the lamb over the, the doorposts of their homes. The picture of Passover is God passing over a sinful home that had been covered by the blood of an innocent sacrifice. That's fulfilled in Mark chapter 14 and, and chapter 15. The festival of the Passover was a picture of Jesus being the sacrificial lamb. And then Leviticus 16 and 15 through 20, it talks about how uh, the picture here in the Old Testament of the Day of Atonement, where the priests would have to walk into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a lamb that had been sacrificed for the people to, uh, to forgive them of their sins. Now here's the thing, is that one of the deceptions of the first generation was that that we had that 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 animal actually took away sin, but what this but what the full full testimony of Scripture tells us is that the sacrifice of Jesus did not just cover everybody from Jesus until now, until Revelation. The sacrifice of Jesus covered all men at all times, so that the sacrifice of Jesus, every single human being that has ever lived, that ever will live, can be saved through faith. It says in the book of Hebrews that Abraham was accounted as a friend of God because he had faith before the law was written, before the sacrificial system was even created, before it was given to Moses as a picture. That's what it is. Is that what happened in the Old Testament, according to the, 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 the laws of the Old Testament, was to give a testimony about what was coming. That Jesus would be the one who would be the perfect sacrifice for us. That He is our atoning sacrifice. He is our penal substitute. What does Jesus' blood do for us? 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. There's other verses about His blood and the significance of Him being our sacrifice, that um, He is the, the propitiation for our sin. He's the one that caused uh, the consequences of our sins to pass over us. That we're justified, we're, pro we're proclaimed righteous by His blood, Romans 5, 8, and 9. Ephesians 1, 7 says that our sins are paid for, or that we, we've been redeemed because of His blood. 1 Peter 1 says that we are ransomed from the curse of our sin that we received from our parents. Our sinful nature that we inherited from our parents, that, that God, because of the, sin of the, the blood of Jesus, He has peeled that away from us. And then 1 John 1, 7 says that through the blood of Jesus, we're cleansed from all of our sin. Now, here's, here's the significance of that. I'm running out of time. 1 John 1, 7, it implies that not only are we forgiven of the consequences of our sin, in other words, the punishment that is supposed to be laid on our, on our shoulders, we are cleansed of all the sin, as, in, as if it never happened. So what is the implication there? that we tend to categorize ourselves and our holiness and our godliness based on the things that we have done. But our salvation and our righteousness has nothing to do with the things that we have done. All of it is built on the righteousness of Jesus. That He is the one, not only that He paid for our sin, but also He has removed even the memory of our sin. So that whenever we stand before God in judgment, there is no sin to account for because it's been totally taken care of. It's been erased like it never existed. That is mind-blowing. 
The last thing that I want you to see is that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Quickly here. That he's prophet, that Jesus was, pro- that he prophesied uh, about the future and that he taught with authority. Um, one of the things about the ancient world is that during the time of Jesus, they had become so uh, leery of making bold statements about who God was that they would basically borrow the words of ancient dead teachers and just say, well, this is what Rabbi so-and-so says, or this is what what teacher so-and-so says. They would never actually make any claims for themselves. But Jesus, he didn't do that. Mark 1, 21 and 22 says, And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. That Jesus stood up and he did not just claim that he was he was God himself. He spoke with authority. He cast out demons. He healed sick people. He actually um, expressed authority over all things. Other verses about his about Jesus as a prophet in Matthew seventeen it says that he that he would be betrayed. He said he'd be crucified and, be, and he would resurrect on the third day. In Mark one, he spoke with authority to demons and he healed the sick. In Luke 7, 7, he expressed authority over death. And in John 13, he prophesied that he would be denied and forsaken by his disciples. Jesus spoke not just truth, but he also spoke the future. This will happen. He's also a priest. Hebrews 7, 18 through 28, or sorry, 18 through 25 says this. Uh, For the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, he says all of these other priests who are pictures of what was incomplete here, they're not able to, to, to come in and continually offer sacrifices for us because they themselves had to be sacrificed for and eventually they died physical deaths. And they, they cannot be the one who can per- perpetually take care of our sinfulness. But Jesus, since he never dies, he's the everlasting priest. That he can continually, over and over again. How many times have we come up against our sinfulness and it's like, oh Lord, here I am again for the 10 millionth time confessing this thing that I've done. And yet, Jesus, in his infinite capacity, can say, oh no, I took care of that one too. Oh, no, I took care of that one, too. Oh, don't worry about that one. I got that one, too. There's no limit to his forgiveness and what he can do for us. Lastly, he is a king. Hebrews 1 says this. It says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus is the ultimate king. He's the one who stands in the line of David. So why does this matter? Why is, the, why is Jesus, uh, the doctrine of Jesus, so significant for us? For this reason. Not only is he the perfect substitute for us, not only is he a righteous judge, not only is he perfect in his assessment of, our, of all of this and have, have perfect authority, but as we struggle and as we fight and as we, as we strain to live godly, in our generation, as we raise our children, as we love our spouses, God becoming flesh in Jesus, the incarnation, is the primary means by which He stays connected to us. That means that there is no trial that you will face that He is not intimately aware of. 
There's no situation that you will encounter that he doesn't know anything about. He chose on purpose to put himself in human flesh, to walk the earth, just so he could be able to relate to you in the most intimate ways. So are you afraid? Are you anxious? Are you proud? Are you overconfident? Are you overwhelmed? Are you wondering how you're going to pay that bill? Are you wondering how you're going to be able to reconcile that relationship? Are you wondering how you're going to be able to raise a child in your own limited human human capacity? God can relate to you in every aspect of it. The doctrine of Jesus is the most practical way that God reaches down from heaven and He touches our hearts and He advocates for us and He encourages us. And most of all, He gives us grace when we fail. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.